Well, Pat from the Past podcast, Brian, hits the road. Blount County, Alabama. And there could only be one reason we come on the road for that. And that's because we're joined by Patriots and Pro Football Hall of Famer, John Hanna, at his palatial 230-plus acre cattle farm here in Alabama. John, thank you for your hospitality, and it's great to see you, sir. Thanks for coming down. And after I get through feeding you tonight, you're going to find out another reason to come to Blount County. (laughs) Duly noted. Love it. Love it. Um, So... We're, we're taping this podcast, Pat's from the Past podcast, talking to the great John Hanna, Matt Smith, and Brian Morey. And we're on this beautiful cattle farm, John. Why don't you try to tell Patriot fans, if you can, a little bit about what it is that you're doing today? Well, basically, it's a cow-calf operation, is what they call it. And um, I've got actually two pieces of it. Um, on the one farm down here, I got about uh, 62 head. Uh, Brangus cows. Uh, Brangus is a, a breed that uh, is that are made up of basically uh, three eighths uh, Brahma bull and uh, uh, five eighths Angus. And uh, the Brahma does it's the only cow that kind of sweats, so it does real good in the south. So having you know a little Brahma in that English is good. And then what I do is I grow my replacement heifers there uh, and then bring them to this farm. And I got about 90 head of uh, Brangus cows, a few half breeds and three-quarter breeds. But, and I, I breed them to a uh, horned Hereford bull. And so you wind up with a 3 inch Brahma, and the rest is all English uh, between the Hereford and the, the uh, Angus. So the marbling's really good in the meat, and uh, people like it, and uh, there's a demand. Plus, I, I saw a lot of replacement heifers, uh, and that's been a very profitable source for me. So I'm old enough to remember and have a copy of the Sports Illustrated cover from 1981 with your picture that I think it's Paul Zimmerman who wrote the piece that said, yeah. the greatest offensive lineman of all time in 1981. Which is on display at the Patriots Hall of Fame presented Correct. by Raytheon Technologies. Correct. If I told John Hanna back in 1981 (laughs) that you'd be presiding over a 230-plus acre farm with Brahma bulls and and cows, what would you have said to me back in 1981? Same thing I'm saying now. Because back then, when when Paul came down, I had roughly about a two, I had about 173 acres. But I was raising uh, Santa Gertrudis uh, cattle at the time. And uh, Santa Gertrudis is like a short horn uh, and uh, Brahma mix. And, you know, it was a good one, but uh, they they got, they were a little wild uh, at times. So I like the Brangus. It's a, it's a more recent development, and I like the Brangus a whole lot better than I do the Gertz. But uh, it's a, uh, I'm, I, like I said, I, I'm glad I got I chased the dollar because it enabled me to chase my dream. So I was going to say, and, and Patriots fans, you're going to see this later on on Patriots All Access and all of our video platforms. But I'm telling you here, we have a smiling and a happy John Hanna. <laughs> this looks like this kind of life suits you. Is that correct? It does. It does. I, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, a redneck, uh, and I finally admitted it to myself and everybody else. And uh I enjoy being out here by myself, you know, and just 
Uh, you know, I'm looking out over there. Or people can't see where I'm looking, but I'm looking back over the shoulder here, and I see my cows out grazing and stuff. And there's no more peaceful thing in the world. And basically, what I do, I, I told one of you guys, I said, you know, all I am is I'm a grass grower. That's all I do. I let my cows harvest it and let them turn that grass into protein. And that's all I am. So I'm just a grass grower. That's all I am. Fair to say, John, that you've lived your dream twice by going through the University of Alabama, playing in the NFL, being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and then adding this part of that as well? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, let's face it. That If I hadn't have played in the NFL, I would have never been able to have this. So... Yeah, I mean, football uh, was no question a, a dream that, that I, I had from early on. Um, you know, I, t- I told everybody uh, how I got into football was when I was in the fourth grade, I was, we were living in Canton, Georgia, and uh, there was a two-tiered um, playground outside the school. The school was on top of a hill. And I was on the lower tier, and a few of my friends uh, started serenading me with the fatty, fatty two-by-four, can't get through the kitchen door. And that was kind of embarrassing. It kind of hurt my feelings, and I, and I went home and told Mom about it. And so Mom called Dad. Well, unlike most parents today who would be blasting everybody, Dad called the guy that was coaching the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade team, who he had coached. And said, hey, I got my boy's pretty good size. He's, I know he's just a fourth grader, but would you mind him coming out for the sixth, seventh, eighth grade time? So Dad got home, said, John, he says, I know a way that you'll never be called fatty, fatty two by four ever again. He said, but it's going to be hard, and you're going to have to do it, but you earn the respect to your class race. And I said, well, what's that? He says, go out for football in the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade time. And I want to play football anyway. I want to be like my dad. So I went out and made the team and actually got to start. And uh, ever since then, uh, football meant a whole lot to me. And so playing in the NFL was a dream come true because, you know, it was a, a way that I earned, that I felt that I, what I needed to earn respect from other people it was something that I was, that I would have blessed with, with some, ta- some ability and uh, some talent. And, I uh, just hope I took advantage of it. Well, so we were talking earlier, and Matt mentioned it to you about Tom Brady being the greatest Patriot of all time. Yep. And I was part of an NFL Network Top Ten Patriots, where number two is John Hanna. Unquestioned. He won't say it, but Brian and I will say it. Oh, there's no doubt. And and I mean, arguably the greatest offensive all. Lineman of all time in 1981, and it's still possible, still still holds today. today. Yes, correct. So you know, I mean, do you ever look back at that and and reflect on the fact that that's where you that's your standing in professional football? No, Uh, I always figured. I I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch the Miss America contest, and the gal that I thought was the prettiest never won. So I kind of feel being named that is kind of like being in a beauty contest. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate people thinking enough of me to say that. I, I, I really do appreciate it. 
But do I think about it? No, not really. But but if, if that's the contest, it's not bad company to be if, if the only guy ahead of you is Brady, is it? It's not bad at all. <laughs> but boy, I tell you, he, uh, he set a standard, no question about it. John, when did you, was there a time, I don't know if it was an aha moment or something, you know, at Alabama, again, great school, perfect feeding ground for the National Football League. When did it, when did that come into focus to you that, hey, you know what, I think I might be able to play at the next level? Uh, when I was about uh, 10 or 11, uh, I, I always in my mind wanted to be in the NFL. I wanted to be follow my dad's steps. I wanted to play in the NFL. And that was my goal all, all, all growing up. I wanted to be in the NFL. And, uh, you know, that was a, a target I uh, shot for. And so it, it, I didn't know if I could make it physically or talent-wise, but in my heart, I figured I could. And then uh, Coach Bryant taught me some lessons when I was at Alabama. And the uh, biggest lesson he taught me at Alabama was that it's not always the guy with the talent that wins. It's the guy that, with the most guts who'll stick it out and play hard all the way through the game. A lot of guys with talent that'll play tough a quarter or two, but he'll take some breaks. When he takes those breaks, that's time to take care of him. And uh, that, was, that was a huge lesson. That's what really kind of got me over the hunt. I, I always figured there's a lot of guys more talented me, than me in the NFL, but I could outwork most of them. Coach Bryant, I think I was reading some literature, you know, about this, and you and he weren't very close. Is that a fair statement to make? And real and close. That's real fair. Were you in awe of him, John, a little bit, or was it was it more fear? Both. Uh, I was in awe. I did. I, I'm not the. I, I was so in awe of him that I didn't want to be. You know, I didn't want to be his buddy, and and I don't think he wanted to be buddy for me either. Um, but we there's two incidents that I remember that really. I mean, I, I respect Coach Bryant and think a lot of him. I love his wife. His wife's the kind, one of the kindest ladies I ever met in my life. But Coach Bryant, you know, we had a Saturday. Uh, matter of fact, I think it was a week before the Southern Cal game that they were talking about that when we, when they beat us so bad. He sent ten guys to the hospital with heat stroke and dehydration, and the guys were leaving. Out of my freshman class, only four, out of 40 guys that signed scholarships, only 14 of us made it. The guys were packing the bag and everything. He come, and I'd have quit. I, luckily, I fell asleep before I could pack my car. And uh, he came in the next day winding that watch. He said, well, boys, y'all learned a big lesson yesterday. He said, you'll push yourself and push yourself. You think you're going to die, but the human body's an amazing machine. It'll always pass out before it dies. And I remember that one. And then uh, my senior year, uh, we were about to go out and play Texas in the Cotton Bowl. And I'd been, and we'd just got back from uh, having our, a day off for Christmas with uh, the family. And uh, Dad said, Well, you know, you've been getting a lot of there. Why don't you ask Coach Bryan after the game if he'd arrange a meeting with you and you can find out who an attorney might represent you? I said, All right. So I'm walking to the meeting, and Coach Bryant comes out of his office, and I said, Coach Bryant, I do not want to talk to you about this now, but I would like to set up a meeting with you after this game, if it would be all right to see if you might recommend somebody to represent me, because I think I might be in the NFL. 
Coach Bryant looked at me and excused the language. He said, shit, John, you ain't good enough to need no damn lawyer. <laughs> no, that, was this, that was the last words Coach Bryant spoke to me at, at Alabama. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there's, there's a little... There's a little... Uh, well, he was wrong. He, he, I don't know if he was or not. But, <laughs> but how about... It didn't, you, it didn't didn't help my feelings a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine that there's somebody that intimidated John Hanna? I mean, I, I don't think Joe Green would be on that list. You he, know? He might be. I tell you, you got to know Coach Bryant. And, and you got to remember, I was a 19, 20-year-old yeah. kid. That's a, that's a big statement, though, to hear. You know, that shows the respect, I think, that you probably must oh, have. Oh, I had. I had. I, well, see, he had come down. When my Uncle Bill was playing at Alabama, uh, he, my Uncle Bill, Coach Bryant came, and my Uncle Bill went through that Junction Boy type mm-hmm. camp at Alabama when he first came. When actually he actually built the fence around the practice field so that the boys couldn't quit so easy. Was they that had Texas? No, that was in Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And so I knew who he was, and he was tough, man. He was he was a tough hombre, and he wasn't no small guy. You know, he wasn't like Sabian or Belichick. He's six four, you know, weighed about two forty, two fifty, and strong as a Canyon ape. I mean, heck, he he'd grab you up by that face, man. I I've, that day when we went for, to the thing, uh, Goose Tree, our trainer, came over and told us all to get our shoulder pads and helmets off, and so we we took them off and we're sitting there. And Coach Brown looked over, and saw us in, in t-shirts. Those damn pads back on and get your ass back in. And when I'm running out, and as I run by him, he kicks me and he knocks me about 20 yards in the front of him. And uh, yeah, I was, I was scared to death of the old man. I, I really was. I wasn't in awe. I was scared. Period. <laughs> well, well, you needed representation. You go into the draft in 1973. Patriots had three first round picks that year. The draft is certainly not then what it has become today. No. What do you remember about that whole process? <laughs> uh, I remember going to the uh, Hula Bowl because I wanted to participate in track, and uh, I could go to that game without losing my eligibility. And uh, wanted to time me and do all this stuff. And uh, being a smart aleck, like I was, I'd never been anywhere except you know Alabama and Georgia. And I wanted to see Hawaii. I, I, I was kind of, they wanted me to run sprints for them all the time. I said, you know what? I got film. You go look at them film. If you like what I do, draft me. If you don't, I can't help you. I said that's the best indicator of how good, I, whether I'm good or not. And and then Dick Steinberg gave me a mental uh, exam to my, see if I was uh, could remember my plays. And uh, that I remember. And then the second thing I remember is the day of the draft, which was like in January, the end of January, back then. I get a call from Fairbanks, and he says, John, I just... And I knew who Coach Fairbanks was because we had played them, my Oklahoma, my sophomore year in the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl game. So I says, uh, hey, Coach, how you doing? He says, good. He says, you know, I'm coaching with the Patriots now. And I just want to let you know, you've been picked, uh, you know, number four in the draft by the New England Patriots. And we'd like to get you you up here just as soon as possible. 
He says, but I need to get back to work now. And I said, well, Coach, I appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you again. I hung up the phone and looked over and says, where's the New England Patriots? Players still do that. <laughs> where are they? Where, 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 do they, where is that? Did you have a globe or did you have an atlas? Did you have a map? What did you do? I went and called some people up and asked them until I finally found somebody that knew. But you got, I mean, at that time, Alabama, you know, we were, it was all college football. Still is primarily. Sure. But what, back then, totally was. The only pro teams we watched was where an Alabama or an Auburn player played. So I knew the Giants because my dad had played there, and Tucker Fredrickson was there when I was growing up from Auburn. And I, even though he was from Auburn, I, I enjoyed watching him play. Joe Willie? Joe Willie at the Jets. Uh, Leroy Jordan with Cowboys. Bart Starr with Green Bay. Ray Perkins at Baltimore. And, and a few others. But that was about it. And that, that was, you know, the rest of it, we didn't really care about. You said your dream was to play in the NFL and he gets drafted by, now, I mean, again, for pa- Patriot fans today that don't understand what the Patriots are like back in 1973, I wanted to play in the NFL and he gets drafted by the Patriots that weren't exactly the NFL at that point in time. No, it was, when I, I remember the first exhibition game that I, we played in, a home exhibition game, we were playing the Giants. And I was all fired up a little bit because I, I knew that the nose guard was, uh, oh, I played at Nebraska, Rich Glover. And uh, he's a pretty good ball player. And a uh, real good ball player. And quick as a cat. So anyway, I was a little nervous. But we were pulling into the stadium, and there's actually more Giant fans there than there was Patriots fans at our own stadium. And I thought that was, that was kind of odd. And uh, it was just, it was very different back then. It was totally different. How was Chuck Fairbanks compared to Bear Bryant? I've, I've responded to Coach Fairbanks a lot better than I responded to Coach uh, Bryant's methodology. Uh, to me, Fairbanks was the best head coach I ever played under. Um, he had a great eye for talent, both player talent and coaching talent. He brought in great assistant coaches. Um, he was great organizational skills, um, just an unbelievable organizational skills. And he was a man of integrity, and that's why you know he left the Patriots because he couldn't. He, the owners of that time didn't allow him to keep his promises to his players. And he said, "If I can't, if I can't." My word's my bond, and, and that's it. For example, when I went up there rookie year, he called. He would call every rookie and says, "What's your goals to be in here?" Well, I sat down in the chair and I said, "Well, coach, I said I want to win a Super Bowl." He said, well, "Everybody wants to win the Super Bowl." He says, "What do you want personally?" I said, "Well, I, I've always dreamed of trying to be the best offensive lineman, or I can be in the league, and you know, be the best." He said, "Well, what's it going to take to get there?" I said, "Well, it's going to be." take a lot of work hard work on my part <laughs> but I said I need a coach who can show me the right techniques and can catch things when I'm doing them wrong and get me a cricket he said do you like your coach now I said yeah coach Red Miller's a great coach I mean he you know he just sent four of his five offensive linemen to the Pro Bowl with the Cardinals and uh, Red was unbelievable and so but a few years went by and I knocked on his door uh, and Red had gone to Denver. And I said, uh, Coach, this guy that you've got now, he's, he's not doing the job. And he said, okay. And that's all he said. 
Next year I come back and Jim Rango's sitting in his offense line coach. Best offensive line coach I think God ever created. Uh, unbelievable offensive line coach. You talk about the coaches, Red Miller, Jim Ringo, Hank Bulla, um, Ray Perkins, you know, guys, you know, great, Par, great coaches. Parcells. How about, how, about a guy, how about a guy by the name Earhart. Ronnie, Ronnie Earhart? How about a guy named Ernie Adams? Ernie Adams. What was your thoughts about Ernie Adams back in those days? John, as who just retired within the last couple of weeks, we're talking about one of the most unbelievable NFL careers that anybody's had, and nobody knows what he does or what he did, but he had his. He was not only with the Patriots on those great teams that you played with in the seventies, but as Belichick's right hand man for this dynastic run that has led happened for twenty years. He probably he had the respect. I mean, you know, we laughed with him and at him some, but I want to tell you what he knew that everybody respected him. Um, he probably was more knowledgeable about the game than anybody I ever met. And he studied. I mean, he worked his butt off. And uh, so he earned the respect of a lot of that. And we knew on, 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 two, on Wednesday mornings when we came in and got that scouting report, we knew we were going to know what was going on because he had, he had built that scouting report. And uh, along with the assistant coaches, but he was the he was the guy that got it going. And uh, I think if anybody, if there's some sort of a hall of fame for what he's done, he needs to be in it because he's a silent hero. He really is. High praise, high praise. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I think Coach Belichick would agree. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, you know, you talked a little bit. John, about the ownership situation. I don't want to, you know, revisit yeah, all that yeah. and everything like that. But in a way, when you see where the franchise is today and you see how it's run and what the crafts have done, is there a bit of jealousy in your head that goes, damn, oh, yeah. man, why couldn't he have owned the team when we played? And yeah. who knows what would have happened? Well, we know things would have been different, don't we? We do know. Right? Well, there's two ways of uh, an owner making money in the NFL. He can go in and he starts building. He'll spend a little money. He'll win a few games. And he starts selling season tickets back when I played and all that stuff. And then as soon as the season tickets start selling out, he cuts payroll. So that's one way of making money. There's another way of making money, and that's figuring out how do I make money by capitalizing on a championship team. And that is what the Crafts have done. And I would have given my left arm to have played when um, the owner, when Bob Kraft was on the team. It's my, here. I think the world of Bob Kraft. I, he's, and he's done a lot for us old guys, too. And... Uh, you know, I, I, I truly, he has my respect, um, a lot of my, I mean, really respect. And uh, I, I just, uh, and I always say, in the NFL, championships always start with the owner. Always. Uh, you look at anybody, the owner always is the building block. You got a bad owner, you'll never have a championship. You have a good, great owner, you're going to have lots of championships. 
and Bob Kraft's great owner. He was sitting in the seats in 1973 on the metal benches. He was probably as frustrated as we stadium. were. <laughs> yeah. He was probably as mad as we were. Right. You know, some of the stuff. I mean, can you believe trading Leon Gray away? And I mean, how stupid is that? You know, just because of, uh, Leon and I were coming up for negotiations a year away, and we were up at the same time, and so they traded him away so they could break us up so they wouldn't have to negotiate with the two of them. So, I just don't get me started. That's, that's, a, that's a, a sore spot in my life. Well, I'll change the subject a little bit then to 1976. And you guys have that outstanding regular season. You go to Pittsburgh, beat the defending Super Bowl champion Steelers. You hand the Oakland Raiders their only loss of the season. I was at that game. And then get the rematch, and they blew them out. Blew them out. You get the rematch with the Raiders in the playoffs, which we all know about the controversy surrounding that with the, the non-holding call on Russ and the well, roughing Oakland, the pass of call Oakland on Shane Hamilton. The Raiders wanted a new stadium. They still, they still need a new stadium. They had to go to Vegas to get a stadium. I know, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. Well, I mean, so, so how bitter was that? Because that was the year that everyone looks back on from that era as the team, Oakland goes on to win the Super Bowl, as the team that might have been the first Super Bowl champion for, in New England had there not been some... Bad calls. Let's call it what it is. It was, it was, a, you know, it was a very similar scenario. I mean, you know, it's. Um, I know we chased uh, that official all the way, and he locked the door of his dressing room so we could get to him. We were trying to kill him, but anyway, uh, it was bitter. Uh, we knew we had a great team. Uh, and we and there people don't know this. The bad call against Ray Hamilton was bad, but that would have never happened. The guy on the sideline, we bam, we ran slant nineteen, and Slam had a kind of a he could have made the first down, but he saw the yard marker and he stepped out in front of the yard marker, but the guy that was holding the yard marker didn't have it stretched out. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so there's a, those nobody knew that, but that was one of the, the things that had, yard shy. Yeah, he 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 was a yard, not even a yard, a foot shy. And if the guy had stretched out the 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 change like he was supposed to have them, Sam would have seen it. He'd have gone ahead and got that extra foot. We'd eat the clock up, and there'd have never been that overtime that uh, pass yeah. interference call or anyway because. Or roughly in pastor call, because on uh, third and nineteen, by the way, huh? On a third and nineteen play, yeah. roughing the pastor call. Yeah, I know. Put you on the spot here. What was the better team, John? The '76 team or the '78 team? It's hard to say on that one. Either one of them would be. It's basically the same team, only with a little more age. Because you you know seventy six you got um, Tim Fox Mike Haynes and uh, we were a little younger in seventy eight uh, you know Weaver had gone then we replaced him and some things like that so I would it would it would be a tough call uh, and I it wouldn't it to me that whole group of guys 
that I played with from like 75, even in 75 or in 73, four even. In 74, we started getting good people. You know, we got Groves and Nelly and all those guys coming in. You got, you know, we had Bam already. Um, we had uh, Geezer, Tony McGee. Um, you know, Julius was there. I mean, just a good group of guys that enjoyed being together. And I loved that. That was the team I really loved. Uh, I re- from that, you know, up until Myers came, uh, I really enjoyed playing football with the Patriots. You know, you referenced earlier why Chuck Fairbanks left. Well, it was at the end of that season when the Sullivan suspended him for the final game of the season, learning he had taken a college job and reinstated him for the playoff game, first home playoff game in Patriots history, in fact, at Sullivan Stadium uh, against the Houston Oilers. How did that whole thing work itself out? Was that was that the loss of your coach that week and the reinstatement, was that a major distraction heading oh, into yeah. a playoff game? Big time. It was a big time distraction. And, uh, you know, and the funny thing is, the players knew that Fairbanks was leaving. You know, why would the guy from uh, Continental Airline be at the meetings at the players' meetings every Monday? You know, after they did to Daryl what they did, so we knew he was leaving. We we'd already we already figured that out. So it didn't bother us. You know, we were just going to go ahead. And, but you know, they overreacted as usual. To you know, they uh, had that chip on their shoulder. So. But it, it, they, they, uh, they certainly had to run a good thing. I tell you what, to look at it on a more positive note, all records are made to be broken. Yep. Um, but that 78 team had a record that lasted very, very long time. It wasn't until just two years ago when the Ravens beat it. Most rushing yards by a team that stood for a long time. Was there? A, it's got to be a sense of pride for I'll you. I'll tell you one record they didn't break. You want me to tell you? Yes, yeah. sir. They didn't have a – we did not have a back with over 1,000 yards. Right. Even Grogan had 500. That's right. So they did it They did it with a running back. Well, we had good running backs, don't get me wrong, but we had an offensive line. Right. And I don't think they, they've ever been a, a, run, a, a, a running game offensive line like we had. We could come off the ball now. Let me tell you what, we could come off the ball. And there's only really there's only uh, of that starting team, the starting guys, you know, there's only two of us left. So it was Pete in the middle. No, Lank- Lank- was it Lankitis? Yeah, Lankitis. You and Leon on the left side. And Leon, and was it Leon died. Sam Adams on the Sam right. Sam Adams guard, on the right. And uh, Shelby Jordan on Shelby the right Jordan, tackle. Right. And so Shelby and I are the only two alive mm. of that five guys. Now was Pete it? came in and played a lot. Yeah, yeah. played a lot. But yeah. but Link was the starter. Yeah. And and then you know you had Grogan running that offense, obviously, and toughest guy and the most mistreated quarterback in NFL history. Well, so I was just going to ask you that. So I always felt growing up, now this is more in the '80s than the '70s, but that he they were always trying to replace Steve Grogan. But I know you have such an affinity for him. So tell me your impressions of Steve Grogan as a quarterback and as a teammate. When you go into a huddle, everybody has his eye on the quarter, and you feed off of it. 
you look in his eyes and you see what he's thinking and how he's feeling and what he's going. And when you, you when you looked in the Gog's eyes, you could just suck the energy and the confidence out of him. You know what I mean? And it, that was what was going on. And tougher than a pine knot, uh, he'd hold that ball. And I got mad at him a few times for holding it. But he'd hold it that extra half or a second or so to get that receiver make that extra move that he needed to get open. And he didn't mind taking the hit, you know. And I'll never forget that you were talking about that Pittsburgh game where we came from behind and beat them down in Pittsburgh. And uh, we were down there, and uh, Dwight White, uh, you know, we went for the first down, and Dwight White got up and spit on him. And Leon and I were uh, there, and and uh, Gro goes, he's, he makes, the, he's trying to get spit in his mouth, but he's got cotton mouth, can't get it. So he just makes the sound, poo. And Dwight, you know, comes after him. And before he can get to him, me and Leon kind of stepped in the middle and made sure he couldn't touch him. <laughs> but uh, I tell you, Groves is, uh, he was one tough hombre, let me tell you. He was tough. There, there were other quarterbacks probably that had were more gifted talent-wise, but there was nobody that was a more of a winner than he was. I want to ask you about two other teammates. <clears throat> Stanley Morgan. Why he's not in the Hall of Fame beats the snot out of me. That guy, they got all these TV commentators in there, and they can't. their numbers are half of what Stanley's are. And uh, why he's, he's not, Stanley was probably the greatest receiver of his era, and he just did not get the credit he deserved. I don't know why. I can't understand it. Russ Francis. More talent than any human I ever saw. Did you know he used to... Different, f- different cat, right? Different cat. He, he, you know, we were talking about people a little while ago who played off of talent. He was one of those guys. He never understood that you got to pay a price for true greatness, you know. And kind of... He... They would have never known who Gronsky was if, if 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 Russ had really played the way he could. He, I, I've never seen a more gifted athlete than him. Did you know during training camp he used to fly to Martha's Vineyard for lunch? He told oh, yeah. me that story. Oh yeah. I'm I mean like, he was what? crazy. We're, I got mad at him. We're out in California for a week. We played the Raiders, then we would go down and play either L.A. or San Diego. One of them. We were at Stanford. And he's walking around coming to practice. You know, he's injured and he's got on flip-flops. I was so, I yelled at him. But, you know, he just, he didn't care. That was just Russ, you know. And I finally figured it out. You know, I ain't going to change him. But, boy, was when he wanted to suit it up, there was nobody that was better than him. 85 comes along, and you talked about, you know, different coaches everything. And Raymond Berry comes along in 84. And maybe sort of writes that ship with the talent that was on. You know, now you got guys like Tip, yep. who's on yep. that team. Yep. Donnie Blackman. Yep. And you go on that run at '85, John. Yep. Um, the first time the Patriots get to a Super Bowl, can you remember what the region was like with all those road playoff wins and going to the Super Bowl and the T-shirts with Barry the Bears and everything? How magical was that run for you at that point in time in your career? It was great. It was. Uh, it was really good. And, and, you know, I don't – there was a – the difference, though, between the, that team and the teams of the 70s was we had 
a great and I'm not saying we didn't have a good defense when in the 70s. Please don't get this wrong. But there was not a better set of bookends in the whole NFL than Blackman and Andre Tippett. I mean, they they were unbelievable pass rushers. And if you ever you shot them both, that quarterback was going down. So we had that. We still had Nelly. We still had the you know uh, Julius. We had the great. We had the, all the great ones, and we had even better talent on defense. Our offense was not quite as good. Um, you know, we had some good players, but they weren't they weren't the same caliber as Sam Cunningham, Andy Johnson, and um, unfortunately they decided to not to start Steve that game, which I think was a very big disappointment to a lot of the uh, offensive players. I, I think when we heard he had been cleared to play, there was an excitement about Grogue starting amongst the team, and when we found out he wasn't going to start, I think there was a real letdown. But that was it was really fun. I mean, let's face it, we got a little revenge on the Raiders. Um, we were able to beat them out in the Coliseum and uh, beat the Jets. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, we were the first wild card team to do that. So, you know, there's things that we did when I was there that uh, we, are, we take pride in. You know, I you know I enjoy being around with Bam and Shelby, and when we come back to the Hall of Fame and stuff, and and we talk old school, and and you know we take a lot of pride in the fact that you know we weren't able to to cap it off, but we got the ball rolling. You laid the foundation. We we, we got the ball rolling, mm-hmm. and finally the the ownership changed the right way, and. Uh, you know, we're, we're very proud of, of uh, the team. The final win of that three road win playoff streak was in Miami, where you had lost 18 consecutive games dating back to before you were a Patriot. Was there ever some sort of mental block with that, or, or did you just feel like, we can win there, it's just circumstances that have led no, to our losses? Well, you got to remember, too. <laughs> when did we play them most time? December. Right. You know, because uh, the ownership... Uh, wanted to have a Christmas vacation in Miami. Well, we've been practicing in 20-degree weather for three or four weeks, and we go down there and play in 90-degree weather. And by the time the game's over, I mean, you can't – I mean, you should have seen what the airplane was like on the way home. All IVs? Oh, everybody's laying out on the floor, cramping and hurting and everything else. Well, you know, so we knew we could beat them down there. Um and when it, and what was really fun about that game, in reality, yeah, we threw some passes, but we primarily beat them with the run. Yeah. And uh, that we that was uh, that was sweet. And takeaways. That was a sweet. That was really sweet. Did you think realistically you guys had a chance against the Bears? If we kept it on the ground, I didn't think we could with an air attack, uh, especially with the quarterback we had. Um, and I knew we might fool them at the beginning, but it wouldn't be a consistent. I, I, so I had hoped we would go back to a more of a rock 'em sock 'em type game, which is what got us there. So um, 
we I knew I I, I didn't say we couldn't, but I knew it would be um, we'd have to play our best game. And there are people, John, who believe that 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 team, that '85 Bears team, is in the conversation for the greatest single season team. Of single all time. season, yes. You know that yeah. team was stacked. So there's no shame in that. You know, you guys certainly didn't play well, and that had to sting. Oh, we played awful. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, yeah. with the newspapers yep. and after oh, the game oh. and all that. And well, for so, us before the game, because yeah. the players knew what, what was, was fixing coming. to come. Yep. Yeah. And what we're talking about is, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but you know, there was some drug issues with that team that came to light after the Super Bowl, and right. it really kind of put a damper on what we talked about was a magical time. So you just were, did you have it in your mind, John, at that point in time? I was I knew I was going to retire. I just kind of that. What what was? Did you know that that was going to be the no. end for you? There, I knew I'd I played the whole last part of the season. I'd torn both rotator cuffs in my shoulders, and my knee was giving me a lot of problems. You know, I had I had a lot of injuries that year. And uh, when uh, Bert Zarens came as the orthopedic surgeon uh, first year, I, I said, uh, Bert, I want you to make me one promise. He says, if you ever see anything on me that will ever that will cripple me and keep me from playing for my with my kids from then on, he says I want you to let me know. So anyway, I had both shoulders done and, and I was recovering from them. And then two weeks later, I went in and they cut on my knee. And uh, Bert called me into his office and he talked to you. So okay. He said, John, your, uh, your femur's wearing off. He said, uh, you've got, uh, basically, you've got a groove, uh, and it's, it's basically hanging in that groove, and you have no cartilage left whatsoever. He said, so it's your bone on bone. And I said, well, are you referring to our conversation earlier? He says, yeah, I am. He says, if you keep going, you'll be just like Bobby Orr. And I said, well, I... That's when I made up my mind. Um, and, um, you know, what's funny is when I originally heard it, it was against Chicago. Uh, the regular season game that you, when you played them in the, re- in the regular season? No, back, this was my second or third year oh, in LA. Okay. Wow. And, and they you know, hit me below the knee. I forgot to be it lower than the lowest. And he hyperextended my knee and tore the posterior cruciate. And uh, the doctor at that time said, oh, it's just a strain. Okay, so I kept playing. It wasn't getting better. Kept playing. It wasn't getting better. So finally, about a February, I called my brother, Charlie, who was playing with Tampa. So it had to be 76. So anyway, uh, I said, Charlie, have y'all got a good orthopedic guy down? He says, yeah, he's really good. I said, can, can you set up a meeting with me? So I went there. So I went down to him, and he said, uh, well, John, if uh, – Right now, the only way we can repair that is to reroute the hamstring to the front of the lower leg. And he says, it's only successful 50% of the time. He says, if we'd have caught it when it first happened, we could have tied the posterior cruciate back together and it would have been fine. But the way it is, you're just going to have to keep your leg strong and uh, just play as long as you can. So basically... uh, 
the, the orthopedic surgeon prior to Bert Zarin's shortened my career. And yet you still played nine years on a bad knee. Played nine years on a bad knee. John, when you did retire, what did you miss? The locker room. Not feeling a part of a team. It was, it was, it, I don't know what it's like for current players, but it was devastating. I mean, I didn't know what I was worth, didn't know who I was. Because I'd always been caught up as a, you know, that's the only identity I could really hang my hat on. And uh, I went through a hard time for about two or three years. I mean, real, did some things I wasn't very proud of. Uh, just em embarrassed my family. Just, uh, it was a hard time. It was, and I don't know if they get that drawn into it nowadays or not, but, uh, you know, when you get sucked into it like I got sucked into it, I mean, it was, it was everything to me. And when it got, when I didn't have it anymore, it it was, it was awful. It was the worst, worst time of my life. What do you remember? What helped turn that around or get you on the road back. to where you were going back and that you did feel proud about yourself? Uh, two things. Uh, first is, you know, my faith, getting back to that. That was probably, you know, my faith in in and Jesus and, and, and God. The second thing was a Vietnam vet. Um, and he finally told me, he said, John, you know, one of the biggest issues you're facing is you're, a, you're like a war veteran. You're addicted to the most powerful drug known to man. I said, what? I don't take drugs. He says, adrenaline. And he's right. I mean, that was a heck of a fix, man. You know, adrenaline is, is the best drug in the world. I'd love to take a shot of adrenaline. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's not bad for you, and it's not, you know, it doesn't. And, and he was right. And I realized that, you know, that I was, I had I had an addiction. I, I was used to going out every Sunday, and, boy, you get that feeling, you know, that, that surge, you know, coming through the tunnel, and that... By, you know the the war that you're one on one combat and stuff and shoot man it was I can yeah, and I I can go back to it I mean I just I'm sitting here now I can still feel the the sense it's kind of like I'm sure you can knock us both over you know what's funny what's funny is my dad was when my dad was about my age when he was seventy I'd retired then. I mean, he might have been 75. And we were watching, and I'd retired, and we were in front of a TV set watching an NFL game. And I'm watching this guy play. And I'm watching, and I said, God, I can do better. You know? I said, Dad, when you watch these games today, he said, do you ever feel like you can go out there and be better than those guys that are playing now? And he says, well, I'm pretty old now, John, but probably two or three plays I could be as good as them, if not better. <laughs> and I guess I'm the same way. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you, you still got that inside you where, uh, you know, I'm not as big as them and I'm not uh, probably as, as talented as them, 
but they never been hit as hard as I could hit them. <laughs> and and they hadn't. They had a defensive lineman in the NFL days been hit like like we could hit them. And uh, I'd like to see how they'd react when somebody put their helmet in their mouth. But I want to ask you is, who's the defensive lineman when they did hit back that you uh, realized, ooh, okay, now I got to I gotta ratchet up here a little bit. Who's the toughest guy that you recall you know, playing against, John? I, I, I I, you don't do you don't the the two guys I always said this there I mean there's guys that were great pass rushers and there's guys that were great run guys the best all two best all around guys I ever played against was Howie Long and Jim Klecko Jim Klecko would he got guy or Howie the one they never ever quit I mean you knew you were in for an all day sucker the minute you walked out on that field. And they just, you know, there are a lot of guys that were great, but you knew they were going to take a vacation every now and then. And, uh, but they would, ne- they never took a vacation. Dad blame it. So you had to play every play. Had to. They were, they were, they had my respect. Howie Long, I would have, I, I could see him being in the conversation. Joe Klecko, I would, I wouldn't have guessed him. So that's an interesting one. Joe Klecko, <clears throat> to me, was as good a defensive lineman. You've got to remember, he played defensive end, he played nose tackle, and he played tackle. Three different, total different positions. Played all three, went to the Pro Bowl on all three. Never got the credit. That guy was strong as a canyon ape, had great leverage, never quit. He was he was a great ball player. Great ball player. John, a couple years ago, of course you have your gold jacket that the NFL does there. One of the greatest players of all time, and you're on that list. How meaningful was that for you? On that 100-player yeah. thing? A lot. It was It was really good. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, whether it was deserved or not, I don't know again, but to be counted in the group with the men that were there, like, you know, Dwight Stevenson or uh, Art Shell or all those guys. It was just, it was an honor. I mean, those those were, you know, not only my adversaries, but they were my heroes. And, you know, I don't know how they'd study films now, but I always tried to watch films of offensive linemen that I respected and what they did against, you know, the guys I was playing with. And to be with those guys who I thought were so great um, meant a lot to me to be able to be with them. You mentioned not being on a team and the loss of camaraderie and not being in the locker room. You're on a team where you can't get cut from it. You're in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Six years ago, I remember being with you in the Holy Land when Robert Kraft took you and 18 or so other members of the Hall of Fame. That experience of being able to see guys like Joe Green and people like that, that must have, you know, again, it's a club you can't get cut from. And no. being around those people in that in that um, special place, John, what, what was that like for you? It's better now than it was then. Uh, and I, I, funny story about that. Uh, when I got inducted, you know, my dad had played in the NFL, so he could, at that time, you, your dad couldn't induct you 
it was somebody had to be in the NFL affiliate. Well, my dad had played, so he could induct me. So he he was giving this introduction for me, and I'm listening, and I think it's Butkus and uh, Buck Buchanan behind me. And my rookie year, I'd played against Buck, and he ate my lunch. I mean, ate my lunch. It was a total shipwreck. He embarrassed me so bad. So, But anyway, I hear him talking, and he says, did you ever play in front of that boy? Buck says, yeah, but uh, he was young when I played him. Buck says, yeah, me too. He sure must have got better since I played him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyway, uh, that's my memory. And that's kind of the way it is. You know what I'm saying? So it's, uh, it's a good group. And, and the guys there, 90% of them don't have that huge ego. They're just part of a club and just brothers. And it's, I always try to go back every year if I can. And uh, I look forward to seeing all those guys and being with them. Well, Matt, every year I call John, tell him when our induction ceremony is in Foxborough. And depending on the time of the year, he can't come because he's delivering calves. I hope you get the same adrenaline rush from delivering calves that you got from playing in the NFL. You know... When I when when you you know if what's funny you don't get the same rush, <laughs> but you know there's a there's a uh, a sense of uh, accomplishment. You know I've always being an athlete. I think there's two things about farming and trade. First of all, both my grandparents were people of the land. You know my mom's family were dairy farmers. Uh, my uh, dad grew up as a farmer. And his business, basically, we built and equipped chicken houses and stuff like that. So I was ram farms all my life. And so I enjoyed I enjoyed being out and being an athlete. I was always outside. I enjoy outside. I enjoy working with my hands. I, I enjoy physical labor. You know, uh, I get a headache when I use my brain too much because it's too little to, to work out. So it's, uh, I enjoy working with my hands and I, and as you, you know, it takes a long time, but, you know, slowly and surely, I mean, like I was talking about, you know, I got a few red cows out there, but there's only six or seven now, and there's 83 blackens. And I raised every one of them blackens. And, and then I've got down here, I've got uh, all of about seven or eight now are registered brangus. It takes time, but it's building, and I'm growing, and you know, good Lord willing, before I, I mean, Moses didn't get started, let's face it, till he was 80, right? <laughs> so the way I look at it, I got 10 more years just to get started. And I'm hoping that then I'll have the farm set up and doing right. And uh, today I, I missed the interview. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, they're having a hearing today on the uh, meat packers antitrust violations and fair trade and stuff because those there's four companies that basically control 85% of the market and the, the beef producer is making the lowest percentage of the total beef dollar ever. People don't understand that the, the, the beef guy, the guy that raises the, the feeder cattle is getting a dollar $1.22, and they're getting $122, $100 weight, whereas the packers are, are getting like around 300 to $100 weight. And they're making all the money, and they control the prices. And if they don't can't get the cows, they'll just import it, you know. And people can't tell whether it's made in the USA or not, because 
they all they've got to do is bring it in from Namibia or from Brazil and stamp it, you know, packaged in the USA. But it's not raised in the United States. It's packaged. And we're trying to get a mandatory uh, country of origin labeling where it's born, raised, and processed in the United States. And, you know, having much more transparency because they do a lot of sweetheart formula deals with their other corporate partners. And we want to see what they're getting paid and seeing how bad they're screwing us. So hopefully the, the Congress will do something. And, and you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of like playing in the NFL when I played. There ain't no free agency anymore. And we need to, we need to get some free agency in the, in the beef industry. And that's why I was telling you earlier, I, I met, before you all came down here, I met with a boy uh, who re- built a processing plant, and he's competing with them. And he's selling to restaurants and individuals and things like that, and he's looking for beef. And <clears throat> I'd love to be able to market and sell to him and direct. And, you know, the more people we get out there, the more market, the less these people be. And tomorrow night when y'all eat that beef that I raised versus what you've been eating in that at store shift, you're going to slap yourself and say, this is beef? I didn't know beef could taste like this. What's that other stuff I've been eating? It's foreign slime. That's all it is. I tell you what, if I were the meat packers, I think I'd feel like a defensive lineman as I see a little, I see some determination in John's face, and it looks like he's getting into a three-point stance, and he's going to fire off the ball <laughs> and knock the meat packers off the ball. I'm John, not, I can't pay the politicians like they can, like the Packers can, but I'm I am upset about it. I really am. It's it's not. I don't mind anybody making money, but when they do it illegally, that's wrong. Our guest on Pats from the Past is John Hanna, Hall of Fame guard, soon to be Hall of Fame cattle rancher. Greatly appreciate your hospitality and your time. Thank you so much. Live in Blunt County. Yeah. Live in Blunt County. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Google Play, and everywhere else you listen. Like the show? Please rate and review us. Listener comments and ratings help keep us high in the podcast rankings so new listeners can find us. Be sure to check Patriots.com for more news and more podcasts.